Hey, I'm Abigail, and this is Peak Curiosity. Today, I have an Englishman called Nate Morgan Locke, who goes by the title of Reformed Mythologist. He has a Master's in Divinity from Westminster, but mostly he's really into stories. He does another podcast that I listen to called Popcorn Parenting, where he and his co-host James Carey break down kids' movies to get to what worldview they are really advertising. It's a really good show. After watching The Matrix for the first time a couple of weeks ago, yeah, subtle reminder that I am a child, I messaged Nate to see if he'd like to chat about it, and thankfully he agreed. We spent around 15 minutes just getting to know each other a bit, and then jumped into the meat of the show, which of course is The Matrix. We discuss the cultural impact, the philosophy it teaches, and finally what happens if you were to live out that worldview. This episode was so much fun. Thank you, Nate, for this awesome discussion, and thank you for listening. So what brought you to America? (laughs) Well, just to get a degree, really. I, I'm doing the Masters of Divinity at, at Westminster, so I just I just finished that, and I'll be graduating next month. But re- I mean, just I could have done one of those in the UK, obviously. But I'm I'm slightly romantic or um, <laughs> compelled by adventures, and America's a much more adventurous place to be than the UK. So I said, "Come on, kids, let's go, let's head west." Yeah. Be pioneers. Well, we got we only got to the east coast, so I'm really headed west. But yeah, uh, do you have kids? Yeah, so I've got two two children. I have James, who's eleven, and Lily is eight, nine in a couple of weeks. So, awesome. Yeah. What do you think of America? I, I love it. I really do. I I was. It's funny because in the UK you have a very uh, caricatured view of America, which I'm sure most Americans have of the UK. But I think it's a it's much more optimistic as a country than the UK, and I really like that. I like its positivity, and I mean even on the East Coast, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's a sort of cartoon country in my head. It's everything's a bit brighter and bolder and bigger, <laughs> but that means you can sort of you know try things and and so I I'd really like it. I mean I can I appreciate all the critiques of it. I understand that it's um, it's got its issues. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it, and pr- I think primarily because of that optimism, which you. Most Americans probably wouldn't notice themselves, I think. Um, yeah. But it's it's American, not Americant. And if you go back to the UK, you'll just find a lot of people just sarcasm, irony, cynicism, pessimism. Hmm. Oh, we've tried that. It didn't work. <laughs> it won't work again now. So what's the point? So let's just all, you know. So yeah, it, I like that. I like that about the states. So and I've enjoyed the last four years we've been here. So yeah, mm. been good. What exactly is a Masters of Divinity? 
It's a good question. It's a very expensive way to read some old books. That's probably it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the one I've been doing is it's quite heavily focused on a very structured curriculum. So you start out learning the original languages of the Bible, so Greek and Hebrew, and then you move into your sort of exegetical study off the back of that. But you've also got a strong sort of systematic theology approach. Um, so they're, they're kind of very reformed, obviously. It's called Westminster after the Westminster Assembly. And then, then you're sort of... The final bit is where we do all of our pastoral theology stuff. So, you know, I, what does it look like to be a pastor? And uh, how do you do that? So, yeah, but it was funny because I finished my, my final exam of my final class I needed to take and just instantly was hit with sort of the imposter syndrome. It was like <laughs> straight away thinking, is this what pastors know? Is this the amount people know? Mm -hmm. Because this isn't adequate. This isn't going to solve anything. So, um, I mean, maybe everyone else learned it properly and I didn't, but um, I sort of felt a bit like I was... Lots of people said things to me and I was able to reproduce them in the weekly quizzes and uh, in the exams and in the papers. But I don't know that I've actually learned it. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. So did you go with the express of purpose of becoming a pastor? Uh, so no. So I'm actually not going to be um, like a local church pastor. That's not my calling. And, and I don't think I thought it was when I came here. But the ministry that I've been able to be involved in has been full time and has been has required me to have a kind of theological understanding and I suppose a, a cultural appreciation or or the or the skills to analyze culture and and, and that sort of stuff. Um, so I felt that I was slightly running on fumes theologically and I needed to just get a bit more kind of uh, study done and get some more fuel in the tank so that's when we thought we had a good opportunity four years ago to come and come and do something together and at the age my children were and for us as a family it felt like we could do it now and mm -hmm. then go back to the UK um, whereas I think it would have been much more disruptive had we tried to sort of um you know come to the u.s for four years in 2021 yeah are they excited to go back to europe do they have memories of it they're very mixed about it actually and we changed our um our language talking about it because we we would say oh we're going to go back home and mm. for them they were like what do you mean home this is home this is where mm -hmm. we live. We're not going... And we've never... The place we're moving to, which is on the south coast, a little seaside town called Eastbourne, we've never actually been to. So we're not going back anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going back to the UK, but it's a, it's a part of a new chapter rather than the ending of a, of a previous one. So, yeah, I, we're all a bit nervous, really, and a bit wobbly and trying to give each other a bit of emotional space to <laughs> not to get too upset with each other for freaking out a little bit with all the all the experience of change so yeah 
Yeah. I mean, they're excited. There's lots of things they do remember. Obviously, family and friends that they had from back home. But um, yeah, there's a bit of trepidation there as well. So Yeah, that's perfectly um, understandable. So let's get into a little bit of who you are and how you've come to be so obsessed with stories. <laughs> Good questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my patter when I go and speak somewhere, as I say, my name is Nathan James Hamden Morgan Locke. <laughs> or you can call me Nate. And um, <laughs> the second sort of fairly pathetic introductory joke is to say I grew up in Narnia. And that's literal because my, that's the name of my parents' house. And I think that reflects fairly well my, my upbringing. So it was, it was Christian, but it was also very much applied into the world. It was, you know, there was no possibility of us sort of sectioning off the Christian faith in our family and, you know, and saying there were other things that weren't connected to it. You know, everything from, from philosophy to science to maths or or the way we arranged our finances or our our house or or where we spent our time was was very much informed by the gospel and yeah stories just happened to i suppose be the particular part of that that i honed in on and then have wanted to kind of study and find out more about and yeah and 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 learn just how much more there is to learn. I mean, that's the the silliest thing with this whole kind of reformed mythologist joke is that it's um, it sounds grandiose and it sounds like I'm saying, look, I've made it, I've thought about all this sort of stuff. But every day I'm sort of thinking, oh my goodness, there's so much more of this. You'll never exhaust the 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 levels of thinking about the gospel and of man's ability to tell stories i mean it's just it's so it's really fun i mean it's just great to be part of something just go i'm never going to kind of run out of material um because (laughs) there's always another story and you can just go well how does that one work and why do we like that and why does that excite me and why or why does it annoy me and what what is it about them that people like so yeah that's that's i suppose my that's not really how I got into them, but it's certainly where I'm at at the moment. And and happy then to embrace the stupidity of calling myself a reform mythologist, <laughs> you know, uh, on into the future. Yeah. Yeah. I first heard of you from the Cooper and Carrie podcast where you did an episode talking about Toy Story 2, I believe. Okay. And the whole time I was listening, I thought, you know what this guy is saying it, it makes sense, but at the same time, can I just watch a movie <laughs> and not think <laughs> about who's Jesus in this movie? Who yeah, are we yeah. in this movie? Yeah. Um, and then you do a podcast with James Carey, one of the partners, called Popcorn Parenting, which even though I don't have kids, I enjoy it quite a bit because I like kids' movies. Um, and what's cool is that you discuss the movies and their stories and specifically with a bent towards how can you speak to your children about these stories mm-hmm. and what they mean, which is really yeah. interesting. Um, 
have you guys gotten much feedback from your listeners about if that's been really helpful or whatever? Yeah, it it tends to be. We the all the email we get is very positive, um, which I think is a, uh, probably a relief to James because I think people <laughs> and Carrie like to they like to go around the controversial topics and get people saying, well, "Hold on, you said this, and I didn't agree with it." Um, whereas we tend to we're a little bit more tame and maybe it's because our sort of focus is a bit narrower so um we kind of have to stick to a single thing but yeah people are generally quite positive about it and people what's what's the most the most common sort of email we'll get is someone saying this is great because this is what i'm doing with my kids Mm. and we and some one guy sent me a, a sort of a, a PDF of a set of questions he asks to his children, and someone else said, "Oh, we, we you should do this film because we talked about this and it, we found this really interesting." And so, in it, what would be we would totally fail if the aim of popcorn parenting was to get people to do a thing, if it was kind of you know trying to sell people on an idea. Because we're not especially, I mean, sometimes we're a bit more more practical, like here's an actual question you can ask. But I tend to shy away from being too scripted and telling people how their conversation with their children should go because, you know, I'm not them and I I don't know their children. And if you don't know how to talk to your own kids, I'm not sure. (laughs) Maybe we could give people some starters, but... Um, it's more that I, I I just like to reflect on the films and the stories behind them and the, why they work and why they don't work. And then then talking about stories is my favorite thing to do. So I want to do that with my kids. Sure. And knowing and knowing that it's formative in them and will help them to get an idea of the world and and how to operate in it. Mm, okay. What is the best kids movie of all time? Oh my goodness. That's that that's I reject the premise of your question. Um <laughs> I'm going to say I'm just going to say Toy Story. Yeah, 1, 2, 3, all of them one, together? One. Toy Story 1. Do you know you get those people who they say, "Oh, well there's a sequel that improved upon the original." So people say that with The Godfather and I think with, um, oh, what's the other one that people say is generally considered better? It's like a bit of a cliche to say it and I can't even remember what it is now. But um, I always think the first one has to do so much lifting to build the world and set the expectations. So I always tend to go for the first one in a trilogy and to say that's the that's the key one. And I think because it was the first Pixar film and because it cha- I think it changed the way that they did kids' films. Mm-hmm. I mean, saying that, you could also... We're, at one point, we're going to do Lion King and that one feels like the film... I can't, rem- I can't imagine what it was like, even though I lived for part of it, what it was like to be in a world before The Lion King came out. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there are certain songs where you just think, well, surely everyone knew what that song was when it right. first came out. Everyone just went, oh, yeah, we know that one. <laughs> yeah. To see it new would have been weird just because it feels so embedded in our kind of... Yeah. 
Let me blow your mind. I've never seen The Lion King. You have never seen The Lion King. Well, you've got homework. Um, <laughs> you, your assignment is to watch The Lion King and then call me back and we'll have a proper conversation about kids' movies. Um, the Another thing you can do, and we'll probably reference this when we do our episode on it, but is that Jordan Peterson did a series of lectures on The Lion King as he a did. way into Carl Jung's archetypal um, ideas. So, yes, if you're you know interested in listening to that, you can find it on his podcast. I have listened to it, and the whole time I thought, this is kind of making sense, but I think if I've seen the movie, I would actually understand what he's saying. Yes. No, it would make uh, would make more sense if you'd seen the film. One quick thought about your podcast and the importance of these kids' stories. I think a lot of people, you know, you just want to sit down, watch a movie with your kids, enjoy an evening, maybe check out. But there really are real things. I had a friend who they said that their son, I don't know, he must have been six or seven at the time. I can't remember. They watched a Moana, and mm. after they watched it, he was in bed, you know, they're tucking him in, and he's like, you know, I think that movie tricked me, because I liked the goddess in that movie more than I like God. And they kind of went, oh dear, <laughs> oh dear. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a thing to say. Yeah. Um, how old was this child? Six or seven, I think. He was not very old. Well, he, he seems fairly astute. Um, quite honest. I mean, talk about regret if you've, you know, <laughs> <laughs> get to the end of the movie. You're like, oh, well, that was fun. And then the <laughs> child says, that just deconstructed my faith. And you're right. like, oh, no. <laughs> only six. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and that's the challenge, isn't it? How do you how do you then address that, you know, and and um, commend the God of Scripture to them as being far greater and and um, more wonderful than what they just saw on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. It's a challenge, but um, I suppose that's why we got the Bible to kind of show us that well i suppose maybe we should get started with the main point of this talk now that we're 30 minutes in mm. <laughs> So um, we have The Matrix, which I saw for the first time a couple weeks ago. And mm -hmm. as I watched it, I thought everything that is in our culture makes sense now. Literally everything. Which was crazy because okay. it's one of those movies that gets referenced over and over and over by people who assume, of course, you've seen it. If you've ever seen TV, you've seen mm -hmm. this. So that was really interesting. And I think this is the most religious movie I've ever seen, which might be an overstatement, but I'm going to stick mm -hmm. with it for now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, that's yeah. fair. 
so how should we structure this should we do somewhat how you do with james or what do you think <laughs> well i don't know i mean i i like the idea of talking about the cultural impact of it which you brought up and how it's it it's passed into you know regular use so many of the ideas um and then i mean i always like to go into the 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 sort of the structure of the story and how it actually functions and the way that it moves along um and then maybe i don't know maybe we then do what's the what you know how does it um what view of the world does it present or something like that i don't know um the 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 philosophy that comes off the back of it sure um, but I want to know what you were saying at the beginning about it, suddenly everything makes sense. You had this moment of awakening. Well, right now I'm having a hard time thinking of the specifics, but it just seemed like there were little things where there was a line and then you thought, oh, I've heard this in this context before. Um, the other thing that was funny is when Morpheus, they're doing their kung fu thing and he does the little beckon move and you realize, oh, in yeah, every yeah. kung fu fighting movie, there's that. Yeah. Um, the other thing is when he wakes up from the uh, download of all the fighting, yeah. uh, he wakes up and he goes, I know kung fu. And me and my husband had just watched the movie series Chuck. And in that okay. movie he gets a computer downloaded that teaches him Kung Fu. And when he wakes up from the download, he goes, I know Kung Fu. So there were just little things throughout that you're thinking that line from that other thing that we've seen copied this directly, which was mm -hmm. really fascinating. Yeah, I think um, what, one of the nice things about that is that the Matrix seemed to pull in a number of pre-existing genres and and story types and and ideas and and assemble them into this whatever it is two-hour film which which brought them to new audiences so most people don't in the west at least don't, haven't seen a lot of kung fu movies <laughs> so their reference point for anything kung fu related is down to um to morpheus and neo in the simulation um but that little beckon thing i've i've always yeah i i think that's sort of because i it was how old was i eight maybe i was 18 when it came out 99 that whole um the cultural impact from from people my age was huge huge because we were watching this just as we're coming into adulthood and so it had a cool i feel to it um which um yeah, that meant that all those lines, you know, stop trying to hit me and hit me, um, became just part of the way we were talking to each other at hmm. um, at school. So, but I, I do think that like the film noir idea of it, because um, it's got a sort of t a, a touch of kind of Blade Runner about it as well. Mm -hmm. and, you know, that for me felt a bit sort of obscure when I was growing up, but but the Matrix kind of get, it was a more accessible version of that and yeah so the it had to have had something to do with the advent of computers 
well, obviously they'd been invented, but they were really starting to take off. It had to have something to do with that, why it hit so close to home. Well, you've what you could, the thing to remember is that in 1999, um, we were all obviously getting ready for this new millennium. And Y2K. And Y2K. The people were genuinely sort of terrified that the clocks were going to go back to zero and everything was going to fall apart. There were going to, planes were going to fall out of the sky, nuclear missiles would launch themselves. I don't know what it was. Everyone was just thinking, um, this, <laughs> you know, this, this shift is going to bring some unforeseen changes. But yes, you're right. The internet was, I mean, it was obviously a totally different place than it, it is currently. Um, but people were starting to, you know, people had their websites and, and you could go to them and you could try and download digital versions of music and um, all that sort of stuff. So in terms of appreciating the atmosphere that was around at the end of the 90s, um, I think it, it latched onto that very well and, and presents... Um, this group of computer hackers or kind of just people who haven't got much of a, a life but just spend all their time in a basement in a darkened room on a computer that was a growing number of people who could obsess about about getting onto different websites and being part of chat rooms and, and you know using usernames and, and avatars and things like that that was largely the first time people had been able to fully embrace that as a as a full time kind of hobby. Um, so and we we talk about the impact of that later on, but I yeah, it, the Matrix as a piece of history in a way, I think is really interesting, um, and its impact almost separate from what the the story actually involves as as a nice series of quotable lines and f exciting set pieces it's kind of cool so um it served a purpose there maybe you would um, know this was the idea that we're living in a simulation at all in the public vernacular when this movie came out um when it, in the public vernacular probably not i mean obviously philosophically it's a very old idea um, Plato's cave and you know Descartes sort of I think therefore I am lots of those ideas had, had, had been there maybe there's something else that's kind of going on but I suppose this was the first time into the public consciousness it was connected with the computer mm. um, and that it was a computer generated world that we were living in now, I'm sure there's loads of examples that people can point to and say, well, actually, in this TV show in the 70s, they did something like that, or they did it in the 80s or whatever. But, but certainly, it was, it, it's a blockbuster time to present that as an idea. And interesting that those phrases, the glitch in the Matrix, or uh, the, the Matrix as the word to use for the simulation. Right shows that even if others had come before it this was the sort of most excellent version of it um, to quote the title of another one of Keanu Reeves's films 
Yes, the most excellent adventure of Bill and Ted. Have you ever seen Bill and Ted? I haven't. Well, that's a fun one. That the first one is fun, and then Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is also fun. So Bill, in, in in, I'm sort of, I'm not the biggest fan of Keanu Reeves, but um, he's pretty pretty successful at doing his thing. So. Um, I mean, he was in Toy Story 4, so maybe I'm holding that against him. But um, he with... Oh, I forget what the guy... His, the co-star's name was. So they were in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. Two complete losers, high school dropouts, who need to complete an assignment, a history paper or something, or presentation on, on history. And it just so happens that in the future they are the the founders of a new society and so people in the future have come back into the past to meet bill and ted as teenagers and mm. help them complete their assignment so that they their future will be built right so mm -hmm. that whole kind of back to the future idea that you've got to go back because there's this critical moment and if you if history changes at this point then everything else will fall apart and so bill and ted basically go into all these points in history they meet socrates and joan of arc and napoleon and abraham lincoln and they gather them all together into a <laughs> a public telephone box which for those listening now was when there used to be telephones in public that you could use um <laughs> and and that was all outside of circle k um and yeah, Bill and uh, Bill and Ted, an excellent adventure. Which is a complete sidebar from actually talking about Keanu Reeves as Neo in the Matrix. And I can't remember how we got onto that, but anyway, I'll stop. <laughs> you should watch. It's fun. It's funny. Okay, I'll put it on my list. Add it. So, do you think that there's significance in the names that they chose for these people, for the main characters? Um, absolutely. Okay. Yes. So Neo, yeah. what is yeah. Neo about? So, well, Neo, I mean, it means new in a way. So the sort of idea of a, of a new version of something, Neo-Calvinism, Neo-Orthodoxy, Neo-Buddhism or whatever it is. Um, but also it's, it's an anagram of the one. So, um, which might not have been the original reason why they did it, but it's a neat kind of thing. It's only, you know, yeah, so, so Neo as a kind of nice archetypal name for your hero. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not quite as, <laughs> as bad as Christopher Nolan calling the protagonist in Tenet the protagonist, but <laughs> yeah, <it's> pretty good. <laughs> but also in, in the film, he, it's a self-determined name so, because right. he's a hacker, so he's really called Thomas Anderson. Um, but he wants to call himself Neo, yeah. which is part of the fun of being online, isn't it? You get to pick what you call yourself, choose sure. your own name. And um, we'll get into that maybe later on. But um, yeah, so Neo, I think, is, is it's just a wonderfully sharp way of getting to this guy's the hero. You couldn't have a Neo who was like sidekick. It's true. Um, and then I suppose the other two, Trinity... Uh, which is a fairly strong Christian. <laughs> yeah. Even though the word doesn't obviously appear in the Bible, it, the, 
in the doctrine of God, the Trinity is, is the best way of summarizing God's three persons in one divine nature um, as Trinity. And then she's, so she's the, obviously the second of those three characters. And then Morpheus is the Greek god of dreams. Mm-hmm. Which comes under the word morph, morphe in Greek means form. Mm-hmm. And so he was a god, I think it's in Ovid maybe, but um, he he would sort of appear in men's dreams at, as a human being. And so he had this kind of kind of prophetic role in in guiding, you know, the dreamer. And obviously there's so much in the Matrix about whether you're awake or asleep and you're not really sure. And, you know, obviously that language of being the great awakening or being woke, you know, we use that all the time to refer to people who've seen seen the, the truth, right? Rather right. than being um, in sleepy conformity. You wake up to it. So, so Morpheus as the kind of the, the kind of spirit guide into this Matrix is very helpful. Um, and then loads of the other names. I mean, it, it's interesting that his ship is called Nebuchadnezzar. Sure. So there's a theory that Morpheus is the real villain because his ship is called the Nebuchadnezzar. They're based in Zion. But the craziest thing is that he's the god of dreams or whatever. But he his role is convincing people that they've now been awakened and they now have the truth. But he could just be deceiving people into another form of the matrix to just further enslave them. That's I mean, is very... it worse to be a slave and not know it or think you're free but still be a slave? Well, that's a very important question that I think they sort of um, present to to us are you asking me that directly or is that a kind of random it was kind of rhetorical thought? well that's fine good i'll leave i won't i won't try to tackle <laughs> the answer to that question then. it's a big question um, yeah yeah um and yeah i think if you watch the rest of the trilogy which i haven't but um i think maybe that i that comes out a bit more i mean they've got to do something with those characters haven't they so definitely um it's spinning it back around to say, no, he's actually a bad guy. Um, it would work. Yeah. Um, okay, so where do you want to go to next? We have the names. There are a couple of quotes from Morpheus that I thought were really fascinating. Uh, when he said, you know, he's going through his monologue explaining to Neo what the Matrix is. And he just says, you're a slave. You're born into bondage, which sounds so christian like mm-hmm. it sounds straight out of the bible yeah and um you know the truth will set you free you know that mm-hmm. is an idea um <laughs> the, my favorite line from morpheus is that and i think he says this twice maybe three times he says i cannot explain this to you, neo you must see it for yourself mm-hmm and then the very next scene is Morpheus explaining everything. <laughs> <laughs> and you think, I mean, it's not, you know, it's, it's not surprising that in a film like <laughs> The Matrix, you're going to have a lot of expositional dialogue where people, characters have to explain to the, 
um, uh, the new character what's going on, right? That's the whole point of the film. But it's just the fact that he keeps on saying to him, oh no, you must experience this for yourself. I must only show you. I can't explain it. And then <laughs> literally his next speech is just this, you know, a completely expositional description of what's going on and, and why <laughs> and everything else. So that's one of the things I find sort of funny. Um, it, it, the Matrix is quite a tell-don't-show kind of movie, which I think is what makes it so... made it so fertile for Christian youth workers back in the, the turn of the millennium. You know, you, you can you can edit or cut every single scene of The Matrix and use that as the starting point for a, a Christian, you know, talk or a, you know, philosophy 101 class and just say, well, this is about epistemology and we're going to do, you know, the guy eating the steak and he says, I know this is just The Matrix telling me it tastes like really delicious, but it's not real, but I don't mind. And mm -hmm. um, so all that stuff is... is it, it is a very, very expositional movie. And it's probably why I don't especially like sci-fi because I find it, you know, it has to tell you what the world, the rules of the world are for it sure. to make sense. And that can just be a bit, a bit sort of tedious. You know, it's a bit like, you know, someone who insists on reading the, the rules of a board game you're playing whilst you're playing it. I'm like, I... I only want to play board games I already know the rules of because listening to them you know, <laughs> being read aloud just makes me very sleepy. So um, That's yeah. interesting. Um, I thought one thing that was really funny is as my husband and I were watching it, and we watched the second one last night just for fun, okay. where we'd be watching it and I would say out loud, why is it like this? Why couldn't it be like that? Why is it being set up like this? And the next scene, like within 30 seconds, my question was answered. So I thought that was so funny how they... Maybe either I'm really smart and picking up on everything really well, or they're just really, really good at leading the viewer into a specific direction. Like, these are the questions you should be asking, and we will answer them accordingly. But I just thought that was interesting more than other movies how it had such a specific uh you froze for a minute yes as did you cool um, so um I, you were saying how intelligent and smart you were that you predicted every single line in the movie yes of course of course yep <laughs> that's about agree. what i, I meant i i have no no doubt that um that that is just um yeah that that's it and and partly because you, you sort of need that. If you don't give people those pieces of information at that time, you really frustrate them. Mm -hmm. um, and t TV shows like um, Dark, did you ever watch that? It's like I a didn't. German, and maybe it's on Netflix or something, but a German drama which just delights in not telling you anything that's going on. And none of the characters know what's going on either because you never see anyone sort of explaining things. And it's it's okay to do that a little bit, but for an entire season or two. And this was the whole, I suppose, the debate on Lost, isn't it? That, um, you know, have you actually thought about this ahead of time 
or are you just making it up as you go? Sure. Um, or are you about to trip yourself up? Um, but I know people have strong opinions on that. But I, you know, as I say, I'm not a big sci-fi fan yeah. just because it it takes so much so much effort to follow what's going on a lot of the time. It's an interesting way to tell a story where the viewer is just as confused as the people in the story. Uh, this is a major off bar, but did you ever watch the Bird Box on Netflix? Had Sandra Bullock on it in it? No, I've not. That's the one where she's sort of has to have her eyes covered while she's paddling a boat. I've seen a picture of her doing that, but I have not seen the film now. Well, it is a really good movie, and the premise is there's something that has taken over the world, and as soon as you set eyes on it. It fills you with a desire to kill yourself, which is a really strange thing. You have to always be blindfolded if you're outside or else you'll just want to kill yourself. But what's so interesting is that as the viewer, you never once see the thing. Which, yeah. It was fascinating to watch. Yeah. And that's in terms of suspense, that's an incredible way to do it. And you think the same is true in Jaws for a lot of the time, the camera is from the shark's perspective. And, you know, if you, if you ever want to make someone <laughs> anxious that there's a snake anywhere near them, you should set your iPhone like on the floor and move it slowly towards their feet <laughs> and then send them that video. And they will feel like, that's the snake because you know they you're you're and they did the similar thing with the Blair Witch Project, um, where you just you wouldn't see what was going on and the suspense. So I, I think there's there is definitely a storytelling power behind withholding things and only revealing them at, at the sort of appropriate time. But there are some things where you just think, oh, it's just so much effort to try to keep track of what's going on. And, and dialogue, which is explanatory, it, you know, it's, it can be pretty underwhelming a lot of the time. And so, so you find this with a lot of storytellers where you've got to think of very creative ways of getting important information to the audience without it feeling kind of super clunky mm -hmm. and um, uh, as though it's unnatural for the characters to be speaking in that way. Um, and and we think about the Matrix is perfectly understandable that Morpheus is going to explain the nature of the Matrix to to Neo, um, but the great irony is he keeps saying he's not going to do that, but he does. So yeah. mm -hmm. the other thing that I thought was interesting is in one of his monologues, uh, it was basically like we made this computer system that was awesome until it took over, and it kind of reminded me of the Tower of Babel, where they were like, we are so great. We are going to make this thing that can reach to the heavens, and then mm. everyone will know that we are God and we are in charge. And then what do you know? The real God's like, oh, just kidding. That's yeah. that's not how it's going to work. So I thought that was a really interesting point about man's creation, how you think you're in charge, but maybe you're yeah. not. Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a very good point about the kind of um, the arrogance and the pride that you know 
that so often results in in devastating humiliation um you know that's one of the ways that god has set up the world that those who desperately build themselves up and and fight to become top dog um so often and so so consistently get get humbled um and yet the reverse is actually true that god you know um exalts the humble and uh, so you think of that um as a st- very strong biblical theme i mean it's in mary's song i think you brought down the rulers from their high places and and considered the humble state of your servant um and then ultimately in christ you see that you know for he did not consider equality with god something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking on the nature of a servant and so on and became obedient to death on the cross and then therefore god exalted him to the highest place and so that's where a yes if you've got a character who's who is reaching you know climbing and very aspirational you you tend to see those characters fall down and um and struggle to get back up again and and for a society as as that's the idea of the matrix it happens that way um i think it's in the same that same scene when morpheus explains that who does he say it's not a case of what but when Mm-hmm. Go, all right so when is it and he goes well you think it's 1999 but it's actually clo- more like 2199 or something and you think oh 1999 since what like we're living in in the christian world then aren't we <laughs> because this dating system could only have come about through through jesus so that was sort of an interesting one just in terms of how the film it, is reliant you know it, it's standing on the kind of gospel foundation even while it may be trying to undermine it in various ways but um yes I, the the pride comes before a fall idea for human society is, is quite a key one mm-hmm. so what do you think the overarching philosophy of the movie is well i think it, it's very interesting to look at that given the personal biographies of the people who made it so it was made in 1999 by the Wachowski or Wachowski brothers since then both of them have decided that they are actually trans women and so they now go by uh Lily and Lana Wachowski hmm and so and and that was a decade ago maybe that they actually came out with that but um i think that makes you look at the impact of the film and what they were doing with it in a different way so there's very clearly a, a christian structure to the story right you've got this the idea of the the, the chosen one who is going to go into the world and save the world from its um fallenness through his death and resurrection right and and that's what neo does so neo's going to die in the place of morpheus and he's actually dead but then he's raised i mean hilariously through the 
true love's kiss, right, is uh, literally what saves the world, right? Which you couldn't do in a film now. If you tried to do the story with that in, in 2021, I think everyone would just go, no, you're not allowed to do that. Um, but that's how you solve the world. And then he rises up and then he's now, as risen Neo, is, it doesn't have to dodge bullets anymore, but just makes them fall apart. And now he can manipulate this world so effectively that he can defeat even agent smith right that's mm-hmm. how much more powerful the exalted risen neo is <laughs> compared to his, his kind of pre-awoken state and his kind of waking up state as he's kind of learning how the matrix works so from a from a structural point of view that's an incredibly christian story arc right it's a mm-hmm. real christian hero's journey and it ends with you know not just salvation but a relationship right where um you know they lived happily ever after right that's that's the kind of idea and so you could argue well you know it's really presenting a kind of christian message right in a way and the fact that the first guy who comes to Neo's door and knocks on the door calls him, you know, you're my personal Jesus Christ, you're my, you know, you're my savior. When he gives him a, I think it's a mini disc or something, probably something you never didn't even recognize <laughs> because they were so short lived. But even even though we have Zion as this kind of heavenly place and and new creation, there are such significant heresies within the way the matrix works that it that it can't be called properly christian so and and i think this is sorry to tie this back into where um the wachowski brothers have ended up the matrix is an illusion it is well it's a delusion it's not real it's not true right there is no spoon okay so everything that you can see here and touch is just a, a sort of nonsense a fabrication and neo can go into that world awakened with as the savior as the chosen one he can go into that world and then he can sort of play with it in a way because it's not real because he knows that it's not real he can manipulate it to a really powerful degree now the the incarnation of jesus totally shatters that because in the incarnation, we are absolutely guaranteed that the world we live in is real. It's not all that there is, but it's very definitely real, <laughs> okay? Because God has taken this sort of on to himself. The, you know, the divine person of Christ now has a, a, a human nature, um, which is part of it and and. Christ is we're not part of his divine nature we're going to get into confusing language around the around Christology but that Christ is a single person now with two natures a human nature and a divine nature and so he's what he's taken onto himself is real it actually exists it's not a delusion it's not a fantasy that we're trying to escape from so the Christian view of the world is to embrace the matrix and say yes there is a spoon and spoons matter like really they do actually matter and everything really matters 
and our aim in life is not to distance ourselves from the world and to somehow become authentic to some real mental version of ourselves but to embrace and 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 redeem that which is around us so to bring this back into the again to the Wachowskis thing we'll, we will get to that if life is a simulation it's a computer game you can decide your player right so when if I play Mario Kart I can choose to be Princess Peach Right? I can be a female character in Mario Kart and it doesn't really matter because Mario Kart's not about male and female sort of thing. But once I'm into a game like, I was talking to my son about this, like Fortnite or a role-playing game, sandbox games, now it actually matters much more who I choose to present myself as and what name I give to myself and what skin I've got and, and all that sort of thing. And the internet as the computer game par excellence has given everyone the opportunity to be somebody totally different and to do, you know, catfishing or, or whatever they call it. You can, you present however you choose. And if someone met you in real life, well, they might never recognize you. Mm -hmm. Very similar thing happens in Ready Player One. Um, if you've ever seen that film when inside, I forget the name of the game, but inside the game our hero meets characters who are totally different in terms of the species and and and, and gender or sex sorry than than the than who they are in real life so once you've absorbed that view of the world reality is this well the physical world around us is is up for grabs right we can decide what we want to do with it and so that's where I think you get to the point of saying, I'll decide who I will be. There's something inside me, which is the truth. And then I'm going to change the world around me, manipulate the matrix to fit who I see myself to be. That was a very, very long answer. But um, I think that's, that's one of the key differences between the matrix view of the world or, or even like a buddhist view of the world right D distance yourself from from the physical and from from flesh whereas the christian view of the world says your flesh is is sinful but it's it's actually real it's actually significant and it matters it's not something we try and escape from in that way um yes wow i just learned a lot <laughs> I'm not, well maybe maybe you did um you, you paid attention all the way through you were nodding as i was speaking so i appreciate that <laughs> it's more than james does if i'm on popcorn oh does he uh he's just sitting there like oh, okay i'll just wait till he's done let me just he's check facebook yeah, yeah. checking his emails and all that sort of stuff but yeah um so yeah I, I think it's important so when i my original take was when i said that it was the most religious movie i'd ever seen i was not taking in maybe an eighth of, of as much information as you did but i was looking at a couple big points where we have what we see our physical world mm. but there's something deeper 
that isn't apparent. And you can choose to see it or you can choose to ignore it. But there really is something more. We just aren't what we can see and feel and hear. And then in the end, when he, the last scene, when he goes out to the world to bring more people to the truth. That's how I looked at it and why I said it was religious. Yeah, and I don't think that was wrong of you to say that. I think it is profoundly religious. And I suppose my suggestion is that it's it's even more religious. It's just not necessarily the Christian religion. <laughs> um, and the, yeah, the sort of Buddhist, I think it's much more Buddhist, neo-Buddhist than it would be, hmm. be uh, Christian. And partly because the Matrix is designed to um to confuse you right it's designed to to keep you from knowing the truth whereas in the christian worldview the scriptures tell us the heavens declare the glory of god Mm. the skies pour forth with speech day after day and the world god has made so it has been made to reveal who he is not to hide who he is sure and the, the problem is not with us needing to be sort of awakened to the um, this sort of nonsense of the world, but to be awakened to see the world as it truly is, which is, is revealing God to us all the time. Um, and so, so the, the Christian... <laughs> it's so ironic, right? Because... Because the advances in science that that get you to having computers that can get onto the internet and all this sort of stuff, that only happens with a Christian view of the world, which sees the world as 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 worthy of of experimenting with or, or on or testing or measuring or naming or whatever else you might want to call it of trying things out, because you feel like it's worth investigating it's worth studying physics and chemistry and 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 maths and whatever else it is and however those particular subjects came to be because this is all part of the world god made therefore the tree that's outside my window is 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 worth looking at and seeing how it's been put together and and um how it relates to the rest of the creatures around it because it's valuable and it, it, it's kind of funny that the matrix could only take place in a city right and very nondescript city where i think the only creature other than there's only a cat that, yeah <laughs> this, this cat what's the cat do oh it just shows you there's glitch in the matrix um and and even even the 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 computer thing that they insert into his his um, belly button, <laughs> kind of the grossest moment of the film, I suppose, <sighs> is it's it, it that it takes on this kind of organic form as a delusion, right? It's right. not really got an organic form. It's actually this weird kind of computer, you know, uh, object. <laughs> and um, so yes, there's you've got to get rid of the natural world and just have kind of bare humanity existing in some kind of 
grid system of a city and operating according to a set of levers of human interaction. You know, the idea that there's a world of just flourishing and abundance and life and joy and feasting and, and, and death and, and hunting and like all this kind of stuff that's actually out there. Oh no, we'll just discredit all that because we now are convinced man is machine. The only option is that he's part of a machine that he could somehow be freed from. Um, but yes, the Christian worldview would say, well, no, we're, we're, you should need to be testing these things. You know, how, how is it organic? How is it connected? How is it, uh, how are these creatures rather than just simple kind of nodes or, 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 or yeah, trying to reduce everything down. It's very reductive, the matrix. Um, and in being reductive can only lead you with more reduction you know, like, well, what if that was a matrix inside that one? And it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> um, you could do yeah. that infinitely. Oh, yes. And you can. And I talked to my son about this. I said we we're going to be talking about the matrix. And he knows some of the references, even though he's only, you know, 11. Um, he'll probably wait for a few years before we watch it together. But I sort of said, well, it's interesting because people say that same thing about God. You know, so, well, who made God? And you sort of go, well, yes, nothing made God. But we're stopping right there yeah. <laughs> with God as the creator um, beyond whom there is nothing. He is the, the sort of the absolute backstop um, of, of all that there is. Um, whereas the matrix, because it, it can only ever be system, it can only ever be part of the system, it, it can go on forever. Turtles all the way down, isn't that the, the great quote? I don't know where that comes from, but mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, very off-topic question. Why do you Englishmen say maths with an S? Well, uh, it's because we've taken it off the word Legos because you guys for some reason call them Legos when they're not Legos, they're Lego the company's <laughs> called Lego and they're individual Lego pieces and so we've taken that S and put it back onto math but also it's mathematics mm. you know, that's, and it's an abbreviated form of that so it's still in the kind of plural I don't know what the, the etymology of mathematics is though so I'll have to stop talking now. <laughs> but yeah. So what do you call multiple Legos? Lego. We just call them multiple. I don't know if I'd even call them. I just call them Lego pieces. Because I don't know if they're. Is every. Are you saying every single bit is a, is a Lego? Yes. Oh, I don't even think I've ever thought of that. I mean, we have a lot of them in our house and but like a minifigure right just a guy with his yeah would you, know, you call that is that a lego or is that three legos oh Head, body i would call because him a lego guy a lego guy okay he's a guy made of legos or a guy made of lego i think i would say legos 
Oh, he's made of Legos. Hmm. Well, I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of why <laughs> you've changed our English language so much. But. That's hilarious. <laughs> so, do you think that the one of the tel most telling scenes of the movie is when Cypher, who's in the Matrix, and he is eating that steak, and he's just saying, I know that this is just pushing buttons in my brain that makes me think I'm eating this amazing juicy steak. But ignorance is bliss. Yes, I think, I, I mean, it's a very, that's the challenge with it, and it's why it's so stood the test of time so much is because it's got so many of those scenes where you can just say wow well that really gets you um i think the present meaning crisis that we're kind of going through in the west is off the back of people rejecting the ignorance is bliss idea and so they they've convinced themselves that everything in the world is series is reducible to to sort of matter physical interactions so so all thoughts are just neurons firing mm -hmm. in the brain all speech is just the movement of, of sound particles and therefore nothing has any more value or significance than anything else it it might be this it might as well be something else it needn't be that and it whatever nothing actually has meaning and value therefore you either accept the delusion ignorance is bliss i'll just enjoy it or you push into it and just go this is totally meaningless and you become a complete you know sort of nihilist and and that leads into some really dark places and we you know that that's sort of the testimony of jordan peterson to bring him up again is the fact that a lot of people who who finding out that they weren't important <laughs> and had no value <laughs> wanted to end their miserable lives and you think well kind of obvious that that was going to happen i suppose but interesting that as the church we didn't seem to be ready with the response mm -hmm. um, it was left in a way to others to kind of deal with that and certainly on a popular level um, you know um, but I remember having conversations with my non-Christian friends when I was about 12 13 you know I'd go for like a sleepover and they'd sort of go yeah but there is no God because there's no evidence for God and you know all that you think you're thinking about with God is just neurons firing in your brain and I just, well, then they're just neurons firing in your brain when you say there isn't one. So once you've reduced the world to a series of just, yeah, uh, matter in motion, um, you just, you don't get anywhere and you don't, I don't think you ever really enjoy anything. And if you do, it's probably because you're abusing the power dynamics, which, you know, in our current situation is the, is the definition of sin right that's the yep. only bad thing is that you, you abuse power dynamics no idea why that's wrong <laughs> um but it it is absolutely wrong fundamentally wrong so 
yes, I I think that's why a movie like The Matrix to to make sense and to to have emotional coherence and and for it to have poetic justice has to borrow from the Christian story you know to make sense mm-hmm. that's the only way it's going to be you know feel um right when we get to the end um is that is that neo is is has died in the place of morpheus and risen um through the through trilovs kiss <laughs> <laughs> i have a question about stories in general that i don't fully understand so obviously one of the most popular story arcs is a savior figure someone who comes in from the outside helps the lonely or lowly the humble and he saves them through self-sacrifice and that is in almost every movie it seems but when they make the savior too perfect it feels like it's uh, it's not compelling but Mm. this is borrowing from the story of jesus who was perfect so why is it um repulsive for us to have a savior who is perfect in our stories today yeah um i i don't know where barry got it from but uh barry cooper i've heard use the phrase white uh right rights white so if something is is pure and good it doesn't write very well and it's sort of difficult to grab hold of and so therefore you you're only i've mangled that phrase haven't i so much but anyway it writes white goodness you know unadulterated goodness it it it, it's very difficult to write that in such a way that it's compelling which may be our fault because we're so obviously Mm. simple so therefore you can only ever sort of show an aspect of the person of jesus and you one of the ways you can do it is by having a, a just a very lowly character who is who is very trusting and very honest and if they are the hero that can express something of christ's um sinlessness um so if you think you know paddington bear would fall into that category you've got Emmett Brokowski from the Lego movie would be a good one mm-hmm. um, you've got um, Prince Mishkin from Dostoevsky's The Idiot if you've ever read that so, so you just have a very simple character who exposes the machinations and the kind of Machiavellian plotting and scheming of other people by their their, their innocence um but and also i suppose that that tendency to shy away from a a truly good hero figure may be one that's part of our kind of 21st century cynicism so you've got some pretty classic heroes and hero stories from the past where the hero didn't need to be some desperately tortured 
kind of soul. Um, but he was able to just get swing in there and save the day um, and, and rescue people and, and that sort of thing. So, so if you look to something like, um, you know, Sleeping Beauty is an obvious one to go to. Um, when, the, when the prince comes to rescue Aurora, he as he, he's just he's just noble and he's just valiant and and good and honorable and and all that sort of stuff um we haven't seen a whole bunch of scenes of him you know doubting himself or or, or, or whatever else it is um and that's that's maybe just because the the to write something of the character of christ is so difficult to do um it's so hard to replicate that you can only kind of do it from you know side glances mm. sort of thing and that's why the gospels are so <laughs> in one sense tricky because they we can't put christ into a box very easily and he keeps saying things that we maybe don't feel comfortable with him saying and doing things that challenge us and provoke us and Mm. that's entirely what we should expect i suppose if he is not a figment of the human imagination but is in fact the creator of the human imagination um i've sort of talked around a few ideas there but but i think i think yeah fundamentally nowadays we really don't like these you know simple good characters who save the day we're far too advanced for that sort of nonsense the old ones seem a bit sort of thin to us um but the gospels the the presentation of jesus in the gospels um is is endlessly fascinating because we 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 he's incomparable we can't do anything with jesus as we find him in scripture we we can only marvel and worship marvel at him and worship him um or we just have to sort of desperately try to reject it pretend it's just ah it can't be true because i don't understand it um so that's why he's so phenomenal yeah but what if it's coming from us being a narcissistic people who like the hero to represent ourselves and so if we are seeing someone who isn't a little bit flawed like us it um it exposes us and so we say ah unrealistic yeah yeah we, we do like to see you know and it's not only that we like to see ourselves in the <clears throat> in the hero figure or the, the protagonist of the story. It's that we can't help but understand the story from a particular point of view. And we, we tend to put ourselves into the character's shoes. And that's a very useful thing in lots of ways, right? Because the third person perspective means that I can tell you something about yourself without directly speaking to you about yourself you know Mm -hmm. we can we can talk about this third person um but i suppose yeah the the hero we need there's a hero kind of that we need 
and there's the hero that we want. I'm getting into the Dark Knight now. <laughs> now the hero we deserve and the hero <laughs> we need right now. Um, and and so we need we need the the savior who is is with us, and we need the savior who is who is sort of not like us. So so that's where Jesus's two names in Matthew one are very helpful. He's Emmanuel, God with us, and he's Jesus, the Lord saves. So in one sense, he's alongside you. He's sharing in your suffering, and and you know, it knows what it's like. But also, he's the one who can actually rescue us out of this pit. He can he can help us deal with sin. So our 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 human need to both to be kind of understood at our on our own terms at our own um, hmm. as we are, as it were. But then also to be pulled by something way bigger than we could imagine possibly do ourselves is is bound up in that because of our creatureliness you know we we're significant but we we we're certainly not saviors but yeah there's i mean there are interesting thoughts about the this the figure of neo and 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 obviously the person of christ i had i had a couple of thoughts just i don't know what what time you've got left but i one of the things i like is is the, the couple of references to kind of Alice in Wonderland and to um, Dorothy in, in Oz. And I, I find some of those references quite interesting about the world building, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, Alice is in Wonderland or she's through the looking glass. And then there's that weird bit with the finger and the, the way the mirror kind of goes in. And, and the idea of, of primary and secondary worlds and, and those secondary worlds, you know, uh, Tolkien talks about about that a lot in his essay on fairy stories, and how you know playtime. My kids just playing out in the street, acting out different scenarios, or or literature, or TV, or film, or dreams, or theatre, or whatever it might be. I just find that a really fascinating area of exploration why do we build the worlds that we build and what is it that drives us to do that and what is it that determines what happens in those or circumscribes what can can be achieved in those worlds and i yeah i i think to go back to what i was saying in the very introduction that seems to be an to be an endless supply we can explore those things forever and, and see people do that. And, and there'll be new versions, well, new ways to tell stories that are going to come out in the next couple of decades. And as the church, you know, as a Christian, I get to think Christianly about every single one of those because it's it you know even if it's endless and it's it's infinite in the, these worlds all of it is derivative right of 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 what christ has and what god has done in creation and salvation so that that uh, my favorite line on that is is when david do you remember when david gathers all the stuff to build the temple in mm-hmm. jerusalem because he's not allowed to build the temple because he's a war guy but 
um, the Lord does let him get all the you know bits out of the box, <laughs> you know. And he says, um, "All things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you." And I I just love that when it comes to storytelling and literature and drama and whatever else it is that we're we're not we're, we're sub creators who who are dealing with the stuff we've been given by the creator and um when that works well and it's awesome and it's amazing and there's a helicopter and there's a guy <laughs> holding a massive big artillery weapon machine gun or whatever it is and smashing all those windows to rescue morpheus I'm like, yeah, that's that's awesomely cool <laughs> because Jesus is Lord. So that that's the way I, I mm. roll with the storytelling stuff, yeah. Is there anything else? You mentioned three things in our structure, but I can't remember if we've hit that last one. So I think, yeah, the, the impact of it, I suppose, was, was some degree, which we touched on a little bit with... with the Wachowski brothers and their lives. I think if transgenderism is sort of can be conceived of as the natural outworking of the matrix, right? Well, there's an essay for you. Um, then, then it's going to be important that we, we keep talking about this. And we we have something to say on this sort of story. If if the the cultural idea that you you are whatever you believe yourself to be, because the world around you is purely there for your kind of you know manipulation, it 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 doesn't have value in and of itself. It wasn't put there by anyone but you and your you know, or the, the co social construct idea, right? Mm -hmm. Then it's really important that we embrace the truth of the fact that God, this is the world that God has made. And these are the days that God has made and we rejoice and be glad in them. So, yes, I think the the impact of something like, well, what if it's all a simulation? Is that you are going to ruin your life in that simulation. Mm undoubtedly that's the only way you'll do it because you won't trust anything and anything you do trust you'll say it's it it's it's neither here nor there whether i trust it or not and therefore i can manipulate it deny it crush it complain that it's oppressing me what whatever else it is the the the, the world that we live in is not a delusion it's not a simulation we don't live in the matrix we live in the world that god has made and that it was very good but it's fallen and god has come to to rescue us in the person of christ from it therefore we don't uncritically embrace the world but we love the world in the in the way that god loved the world and we love being who we were created to be rather than feeling that we have to somehow wake up inside the bath of fluid and <laughs> unplug ourselves from this world and, mm -hmm. and declare it, you know, the spoon not to exist. On Just one final thing on the spoon, though. Okay. 
you won't have heard of this name, but there was a guy in the UK who was on TV a lot during the 90s, whose name was Yuri Geller. Now, I didn't, I, I mean, lived in Britain, but I don't think he was, I don't know what his sort of family background was, but he was like this sort of TV personality who would go and do strange things, right? They'd have him on talk shows and he'd sort of do strange things. A bit like a kind of a prototype David Blaine. Have you heard of David? You know, David He's a Blaine? magician, he like isn't a, he? Yeah, he was like a magician, but he'd do all these like illusions and stuff. So it like it it blends between kind of magician, illusionist, sort of psychological, you know, manipulation suggestive like all, all of those things like an entry point anyway yori geller the reason i bring him up was because his trick was he would go on the tv and he would hold a spoon okay and he would start sort of wobbling it or something and it would bend and people are like oh my he can bend spoons like well <laughs> so what <laughs> like if if the extent, it's like you, when people get with the sort of faith healing thing, it's like, oh, well, why are you just standing in a, in a, you know, it's a whole can of worms, but, you know, standing in the street asking people if they've got a pain in their hip, why don't you go to the hospital and actually, you know, right. help people who are there, right there. And <laughs> the spoon thing, I just always laugh that when, he, when Neo kind of says, like with total, you know, seriousness, like there is no spoon. And that little girl sort of showing him how to do it. Is think, why are you just ruining people's cutlery? Like, that's not... <laughs> now, who's that helping? In mm -hmm. no way, shape or form. Now, you know, I get, I get it that that's something you can practice on, maybe. But it just seems like such a... Um, like, you're ruining the spoon. Like, at least if we keep the spoon, we can eat ice cream, we can eat cereal, whatever it is. <laughs> but you just... So I yeah, Yuri mm. Geller was not a person that people took seriously, <laughs> <laughs> and yet somehow his magic has made it into this you know kind of um, significant mm. movie of the Matrix. So I think it is important. I hadn't thought about it until you just said that, but I think it's really important that you trust your senses. I think a lot of some of the weird things that we're seeing in our culture right now is coming from you can't trust your senses. It's not mm. there. Everything that you're seeing with your eyes is an illusion. It's a social construct. And yeah. you're stupid if you believe what your eyes are t telling you. Yeah, yeah. And yes, and I suppose the, the, the interesting thing with the whole internet you know, as being the thing our eyes are looking at a lot of the time is that our eyes are being manipulated by the internet. So a lot of the time you can just put your phone down, stop doom scrolling and just take a walk outside, you know, go into, you know, find an actual other human being and interact with them without that interaction being mediated through x um, mm. zeros and ones yeah. i was going to say x's and o's then but that's a totally <laughs> different thing um so 
so not to say we should you know disregard or you know become like the Amish but but to say that that are the internet can manipulate and and it's as a form of media it's it's so well crafted to manipulate that there's an awful lot about our re being rewired by our machines um is kind of already taking place and so our the need to step out of that and somehow try to engage with the world in a non-digital capacity as our ordinary approach to life <laughs> rather than you know and covid did this as well it's like no my normal approach is to go mm. is to operate via the internet mm -hmm. on everything and then occasionally i sit down around a table and have an actual meal with other human beings or I walk somewhere, or I go surfing, or, or climb a tree, or, or throw a ball, right? Like, do those kind of, you know, things um, which aren't based upon on having a Wi-Fi connection or, or, um, or being plugged in. So, yeah, I, th I think that's, that's, a, that's a thing that the Christian worldview should really encourage us towards i think um the whole kind of holistic approach to life and, and and interaction rather than just a kind of squeezing everything through the webcam and through the the microphone and and via all the banks of machines and up in the satellites and stuff so it's a good thing i mean we're chatting now because of it but yeah, it, it's nice when that is a, a single part of our lives rather than the default operating system, which is a shame when that happens. Mm -hmm. I have one last theory on the Matrix, and then I'll go okay. to my final questions. What yeah. if this was a prophecy of the 2020 election where Trump really won, but our Matrix is created to believe that Biden won? And Q from QAnon is the Morpheus character who gives us the red pill. Also red being the color of the Republicans. That's, that's it. I think that, that I can believe that. I'm in one sense, I'd be, I'd be very comfortable if that was the situation. Um, we have a good amount of, tin goods and ammunition in our basement so i'm ready to go mm -hmm. i've been trying out some militias uh trying to join some militias so i'm um yeah i i can i can live with that if that was the truth it wouldn't bother me either way i'm i'm very much ambivalent when it comes to most conspiracy theories yeah cool <laughs> <laughs> you know I, mean? I just in, i'm in i'm in for it cool let's go yeah, I no. could feel my husband rolling his eyes at me from here, and he's like in the opposite end of the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm happy. I'm fine. Dominion voting machines and, and Chinese interaction and vaccines are made by Bill Gates, and we didn't land on the moon. And <laughs> I'm cool. I'm genuinely fine with every single one of those and fine with them not being true either. So, yeah, hmm. that's my sort of default position. 
I think this because I'm all about, as you know, I'm all about the story. Yeah. So it makes it kind of more fun, doesn't it? For sure. Um, yeah. Let's go with it. <laughs> Let's do my final four questions. You can take as much okay. time as you wish to answer okay. them. Do you prefer The Office or Parks and Rec? I think I've got to say Parks and Rec because my wife will, she's watched Parks and Rec with me, whereas she just won't watch The Office. She finds it awkward. <laughs> so I'll take the kind, I'll plead the, I'm no longer one flesh, but I'm no longer just a single man, but I'm united to my wife. So Parks and Rec, we can do, um, but The Office just the cringeworthiness of it she just can't cope with it mm. so i mean scott's tots or the dinner party episode she would i think she would just break down in tears and just <laughs> have to all yeah <laughs> she couldn't do it she couldn't survive so yeah. oh man that's hilarious i have a nephew who who responds like that also and i'm i can't get him to understand like the thing that's making you cringe that's the entire point like mm. you're feeling exactly the right thing. Don't run from it. Yeah. No. Do you think that Genesis chapters one through eleven are history or myth slash legend? Um I go with well, I don't take myth as being necessarily not true. Yes. So my my you know myth became fact is the Lewis essay that is really helpful on this, um, and when it comes to Genesis, I think it's pretty bare history as history. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Uh, but as as myth as 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 creation story is a kind of explanatory story it's absolutely there and it's true in a way more powerful way than i think we tend to treat just history so i think it's both yeah um and i think i i was i spoke to my, one of my professors about this once a guy named Vern poitras and we talked about, you know, myth became fact. And he said, well, it, it's more a case of, of fact became myth. And I was like, whoa, that's one of those <laughs> kung fu moves that they talk about, isn't it, in theology? So, um, yes, I know I've bottled that, but um, I take it to be 100% true. I'm not even going to say 100% because that sounds more kind of mathematical, doesn't it? I'm going to say it is completely and totally true, dude. That's what I'll say. <laughs> yeah. I think I know where you're going to go with this next question. Uh, but Ooh. do you think that there are aliens? Uh, undoubtedly. I did not know where you were going. <laughs> no, you know, there's that bit when Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this pasture. No. I have sheep that are not of this flock. Let me Google this. Hang on. Yeah, I think maybe it's John 10. 
in the Good Shepherd bit. Um, no, I'm being slightly disingenuous because you're, I think, supposed to read that as Gentiles rather than aliens. Um, I like aliens better, though. <laughs> but I, yeah, the problem with the the problem with aliens, here's the thing: is they have to fit into some kind of category, and because they're by definition not human, therefore Christ's salvation of them, if that were such a possibility, um, would have to have involved his taking on their nature. Mm. If they were fallen, if they're not fallen, they're sort of a bit like the angels and outside of of our... Um, yeah, they're outside of the store, the history of redemption in that way. But very, again, fine. No problem with there being aliens. Again, very happy to go with that. And, um, hmm. Hmm. You talk a lot like Ricky Gervais. That is interesting. Maybe I, I don't think I've had the Ricky Gervais one before. I often, when I'm preaching... <laughs> Because I do a lot of storytelling as I'm doing it. And people come up and say, you know that illustration you did? That sounded like this person. Mm. So, And they're usually comedians. Mm. Um, but, it's probably yeah, because Americans only know of British people if they're comedians. Mm. Also because I suppose my accent isn't quite as... Um, as posh and uh, <laughs> I don't pronounce things as as well as James and Barry do. So people are used to them. Sure. I'm sort of fit into a slightly different category. Brit. And they say, oh, well, who's he like? I've had John Oliver in the past. People have said that. Mm. I sound a bit like him. Do you have an accent particular to the region where you were born? Not really, no. Mm. My the town. My parents are from the south of England, so they both sound sort of more. Uh, they they have long a, so they say grass and bath and path and that sort of stuff. Um, where and I did till I was about five, and then when I went to school, it was kind of beaten out of me by my classmates because we lived in the in North Midlands, and so that would be bath, path, grass, and all that sort of stuff. But, but I did, up until I was about 18, my U sound was very um, short. So I'd say butter mm. instead of butter. And that distinction has changed since I moved down to London when I was um, when 18. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So mm, the accent thing is, yeah. And it's something I don't think a lot of Americans appreciate about the range of regional accents in the uk no but if you just stop and think about it for a second the us has so many different accents we are one country aren't we we should all sound the same exactly but and that's when people say you know can you do an american accent you think well which which state like whereabouts because people in Mississippi don't sound anything like people in California. So can you do a a, a Minnesotan accent? Minis now I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan, and I've been to Minnesota a couple of times. But it's sort of like the Fargo accent, isn't it? Kind of funny looking, yeah. Yeah, kind of like mm. that. Mm -hmm. Kind of funny looking. 
and it's it's I sort of it's a bit like a kind of Canadian, mm, isn't it? It is Canadian esque. Um, and I, what was that show, Making a Murderer, where that guy was? Mm. He was from. He wasn't from Minnesota. Maybe he was from Wisconsin or something. But but they had kind of weird, weird accents. You don't get many people on TV. Brendan Dassey, that was his name, wasn't it? Wonder what what's happening with that story now. I don't know. I remember. This is so off topic, but uh, Jordan Harbinger. Are you familiar with him at all? I'm not, no. He has a pretty big podcast. Not that worth listening to. But he said he was in Alabama or something and he got pulled over. And the cop had the thickest southern accent you could hear of. Mm. And because you're used to watching movies where you just have like the standard American accent. So the cop could understand jordan perfectly and jordan could not understand a single word the cop said and the cop gave him a huge ticket because he just thought he was being disrespectful and rude he was Mm. just saying no i cannot understand a single word you're saying (laughs) yeah but that was one of the things i you know talked about the matrix and the quotable dialogue and that and so many of the movies we watch you just get a particular idea for a a character and Forrest Gump was one of those definitely for me of you know um, and so many you know Brits would be laugh is like a box of chocolates um, <laughs> all that's Lieutenant Dan you got new legs um, <laughs> and that stuff is just so much fun you know that's the fun of it um, so yeah all right final one who or what inspires you to be your best self? Oh, that is a very good question. Um, I mean, you, it's sort of obvious. Well, the, the gospel sort of, you know, Jesus and a kind of religious answer. But I, I suppose... It really depends. I think the people that I'm with draw different things out of me. In, and, and, you know, the best self thing, you know, it's kind of aggregation of all the aspects of you, isn't it, I mm-hmm. suppose, if you were trying to define it. So there are different aspects of myself that I know that I can't, that won't be drawn out unless I'm with certain types of people in particular ways. Um, there's a kind of, I mean, I, I'm fairly sort of irreverent a lot of the time, but my kids, particularly my daughter, draws out a kind of real silliness in me, which um, I just enjoy, just the, being absolutely ridiculous. And um, yeah, and and that kind of playfulness, which I suppose is where I feel most... Um, m- yeah, if you were saying what's the best version of Nate, it's a playfulness where I'm just throwing around ideas and with someone else in a really stupid way, usually with hundreds of different accents and singing and throwing stuff and whatever. So a kind of creative sort of spirit would probably be the, the arena, I would say, that I work best in. And usually with... With children, I suppose, is part of it. Because I think you can get away with more then. 
they're happier to kind of keep playing. And if you find friends like that, so, you know, that's the reason why Barry and I have been friends for such a long time is because we, we'd have long car journeys driving to places and play, just do stupid jokes and stupid voices in the car, which, yeah. So, so that, that's a kind of, I suppose the, 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 the best version of myself I can think of right now would be a, a very silly version of myself. Yeah. Mm. Well, that wraps us up. Thank you for doing this. I am genuinely looking forward to editing this so I can re-listen because oh. I always learn so much more second time through. I can imagine. Yeah, I, I fortunately don't have to do any editing for the Popcorn Parenting podcast because James can do that way more efficiently and effectively than it would be if I did it. Um, but I always love listening back um, to realize what I actually said. Um, so he'll send me a draft and then I get to listen to it and go, yeah, I think that works. Or yeah. on the odd occasion, you know, say no. But um, yeah, I know it's been a fun, fun conversation. I've very much enjoyed meeting you. Yes. In this way. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Well, you have a good afternoon and I shall let you know when this comes out. That'd be awesome. Okay. Good to chat. I'll see you. Bye. Bye.